Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one features Professor Angela Wilson, Professor of Politics at the University of Manchester and Chair of the Political Studies Association. Well, this is an absolute corker. Uh, I've met Angela a couple of times and she is funny, obviously exceptionally intelligent. And we talk about her current work on the strategies of the Christian right. Try and get her to predict the future, as I often do with with our academic guests. And uh, we talk about a million and one things in between. And on top of that, I have noticed that particularly when talking to academics and particularly talking to uh, people who are basically not white men, I immediately get... And I think I'm overthinking it. I immediately sort of want to check what the right words are, even though i kind of obviously not an idiot, but you just immediately... I'm consumed by a fear that I'm going to offend someone by not using the correct terms. So I've gotten into that habit. I think it's always best to ask, even if it feels obvious. But I'm going to listen back to this and go, yeah, you should have just used the word lesbian. Like, what's wrong with you? But Angie's very gracious uh, and is superb. And as you can tell, one of the, one of the you know, not just the countries, but she's a leading global academic uh, on a variety of, uh, of social science and political areas. So this is just a great... Th- I mean, we had Jan Holper-Hayes on uh, a few episodes ago who was pro-Trump. Uh, I think it's no exaggeration to say uh, Professor Wilson isn't, uh, isn't pro-Trump, but it talks about her own politics in a very tactful way. Um, and we don't really drill down into her own politics in the sense of who she would support in an election or where on the political compass she is. But we certainly talk about her extensive work, uh, really analysing the, the particularly the Christian right in America. So this is... Uh, I mean, it's a, I think we did slightly more than an hour, but it did. As always, it flew by, so please enjoy Professor Angela Wilson. I'm joined by Professor Angela Wilson, Professor of Politics at the University of Manchester, Chair of the Political Studies Association and Co-Editor of Politics and Religion. And can I call you Angela, Professor Wilson, Ange, what should I go for? Uh, Ange or Ange is fine, Ange but I'm no fine. longer Editor of Politics and Religion, so you will need to do that but again. Former Co-Editor yeah. <laughs> of Politics and Religion Journal. When did you stop co-editing that then? Last year. OK, so fairly recent. So fairly my, recent. my cursory internet research wasn't that far off. No, no. Um, but Professor of Politics, University of Manchester, author of a variety of various fascinating publications. Your work, well, I don't know whether to start with Below the Belt, which is your kind of signature piece, your your uh, the, the, the 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 book that launched you, or your current book, the one that you're currently working on about Trump. And the, let's start maybe with the 
the more contemporary one. Okay. If that's okay. Either, either way you want to go, it's fine with me. So you're currently writing a book about Trump and the religious right in America. I'm not writing a book about a book about Trump because everybody and their dog is writing a book about Trump. So okay. I'm not writing about Trump. For years, I've been re- researching the uh, U.S. Christian right. Yes. And um, spent about the last ten or fifteen years. My first book was Below the Belt, as as we'll discuss later. But um, so politics and religion has always been my research interest. Yeah. For various reasons. And um, for the last 10 years, I've been spending time doing participant observation at various Christian right events um, in the U.S., which has been fun, interesting, and and I've learned a lot. Um, I've looked at, I've been signed up to their email list, so I have about 12 years worth of emails that they send out to constituents (laughs) that I'm doing discourse analysis with. Um, and um, and I've been doing elite interviews, so that's the methodology for the book. Yeah. So it's about the political strategies of the American is, right, particularly the, a, the Christian right. Yeah, exactly. It's about the political strategy. They have had the most successful political strategy of any other group, uh, including both parties, um, in the last 50 years in America. Incredibly successful. Um, and I wanted to look and see, okay, what is it? what is it that they're doing um, that's so good, that's so successful, that makes them as successful as they are. Um, and perhaps maybe others could learn from that. In terms of emails, that's a fascinating first port of call because I sign up to every email of every party. <laughs> I still get ones from Sherrod Brown and the ones from a variety <laughs> of American ones that I've just signed up to as well as Labour, the Lib Dems and whatever. Yeah. And I just... The, the, I wonder how much actually... Firstly, I wonder if the uh, frequency altered at all over those 12 years. You know, Were they always weekly or were they around specific campaigns? Well, what we found um, are that the emails come around specific campaigns. There's been two, two interesting findings. One is that I only signed up for about five groups originally, and those were the key organisations for the Christian right. Um, and these aren't emails that you have to pay for or anything like that, that you just sign up and say, I want to, uh, I support you and I want to, to get your, uh, yeah. get your emails. And, but then what's happened over time is how, is watching how they've sold my email address onto other groups. So the amount of other groups then. So at the moment I probably get, uh, emails from about 20 or 25 groups and some of those, particularly the smaller ones have come and gone over times and over campaigns and, um, and that sort of thing. So that's one thing is about how they share email lists with between groups. And the second thing um, is about how the message has changed over time. So um, one of our latest findings, looking at one particular group um, that's very key uh, to not only the Christian right, but I would say to the Republican parties, because Christian right, gen- if you if you think about them generally speaking, make up about sixty to seventy percent of the Republican Party. So they're a significant wow. constituency, um, both in agenda setting and in getting their voters out on the day. Um, so they'll go get grandma and somebody that just joined the church and everybody out. Yeah. So they're, they're very well-engaged citizens. Um, so this particular group, what's been interesting is, is people from the left look at the Christian right and say, oh, they hate gays and they hate abortion and they hate this and they hate that and that's all that there is about them. But what's interesting is, for example, let's take their key issue, which is abortion. Um, we've mapped over the 12 years that abor- 
they only use abortion when this is when they're speaking to their constituents through email or in old money, what would have been direct mail, which yeah. they they were very good at. Um, through email, the only times they begin to mention abortions is in the run-up to elections. So it's their issue that they go to to get the constituency moving again. Wow. And then once the election is over, it completely falls off their agenda. So then you think, okay, well, they hate gays. And that's, well, and what, so we've watched how that's changed over time and how they talk about um, gays. And, and early on, uh, 10 years ago, it was, it was the language of homosexuals um, that shifted significantly and, and dropped. Um, and they then started talking a little bit about same-sex marriage. Um, and then after the Supreme Court decision, the Obergefell decision, um, they, the, that completely dies out. They completely stop talking about the gays at all. We're not important anymore. They uh, kind of see at the moment that they've lost that argument. And there are other things then that come to the fore. So does this make you slightly more sympathetic towards them in a way? I mean, you could look at them, I suppose, in a cynical way and say, well, they use abortion as a hot-button topic to to stir up that that emotion when they need it. But actually, the rest of the time, they're, they're not that bothered. Does that reflect positively on them or negatively? Well, do you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. You know, I went in thinking, you know, I want to know what it is that they're doing in a in a... Slightly hostile way. You know, some people come to me and say, oh, my God, how can you spend time with them? Um, and actually, what I've learned over that 10 years is they are incredibly political, politically intelligent. Yeah. Um, they are amazing political actors. And I just to be very clear in my research, I distinguish between the average Christian right voter who I don't engage with and don't. That's not a part of my research. And the, those that are in the elites of the Christian right that are agenda setting and that okay. are engaged, uh, particularly inside uh, the DC Beltway. So it's those elites that I'm looking at, and how are they? How are they using politics? How are they politically strategic? And and that's what they've been particularly successful at. So over time, I've actually become absolutely amazed by them, and think, oh my God, these are these are really smart people. Yeah, but I suppose. Whether they're smart or not is a separate issue to whether they're they're behaving responsibly or whether they're having a positive impact on the world. I mean, it's very easy for people in this country to look at them and denounce them in the in the terms that you you, you outlined earlier. Can you find positives to say about them? Not just that they're savvy, but can we be morally reassured that they're not all okay, you know, the people so, that we might <clears throat> fear they are? Yeah, I guess I guess what I've learned is to stop using the language of they of yeah. them and us. And that's that's their language, and the left has gotten into that bad habit as well, and that just that just makes the polarization that much worse. So if we look at them, quote unquote, my hands are my fingers are going. Um, if we look at them and we say, oh well, they're bad and they're hateful and they're, um, then we don't listen, and we don't listen to them. And actually, when you listen, particularly to the constituents, but when you listen to them, they're not coming from an unreasonable place. Now, what I mean by unreasonable and what they mean by unreasonable, they don't start from the same moral moral view that some British people start with, many British people start with. Um, and so you could say, oh, well, they're all crazy. But that's actually not, not the case. They start from a different place, which is the world needs to be as they see it needs to be. And then therefore they act rationally based on that. And, and because they are active political citizens... 
then I want to watch what they're doing in the public square and how they do it, just like I would any other political actor. Has that helped? Because these are divisive times, and I think people feel very anxious about the sorts of people that are leading nations and, and leading the, the direction that the world is going in, particularly in America. Has this research in any way reassured you about the direction of the people that are in charge? Um, if you're talking about people that are in charge as in Trump and his administration, um, I would never say that I was reassured by Trump being in the Oval Office. Yeah. Let's be very clear by that. I think most many people in America would uh, not be particularly reassured by Trump. Um, but there are those um, that are reassured by the moves that he's making. Um and one of those groups is the Christian right. And so one of the questions, I don't know if this answers your question, but one of the questions that comes at me a lot is how on earth can the Christian right and all of the morality be supporting Trump? Um, so if you don't mind, I'll tell you a story about exact, that explains exactly why that is. So one of the groups that I go to regularly is um, uh, an event called Values Voters that is supported by many groups, but mostly by the Family Research Council. Now, Values Voters is an event that happens once a year in Washington, D.C., in one of these great, actually, a six-star hotel. I didn't know six-star oh, hotels were invented, but there you go. And um, the the purpose of this event, they probably get 2,000 or more folks together, and these are their middle managers. Yeah. So they get their middle managers together, and they're not explicit about this, but what the purpose of the event is to, is to teach those middle managers how to talk about certain issues and what's coming up. And most of the, it's a, a long weekend, and most of the sessions are in large plenary groups. So there's, so you're not kind of off discussing those events. There's no democracy here. It's, it's you know, this is, this is important. Now, every single Republican who wants to be in office or in high office or certainly the presidency has to go to values voters. So they have to turn up there. And I've been going for years. I've seen them all. They go and they present and they say, oh, yes, I'm one of you. I believe this and I believe that. And then they're assessed. And at the end of the weekend, they have a kind of straw poll. Now, there's problems with their straw poll, so I'll leave that to the side. But um, years ago, at one of these similar events before values voters began, um, Ronald Reagan went along to one of these events and Ronald Reagan said, and you can listen to the to the speech, Ronald Reagan said, look, you know, guys, I'm not one of you. I I believe, but I don't believe like you. But, and I paraphrase, he didn't actually say this, but if you listen to the speech, it's the purpose. Uh, but I want to be president and I know that you're a significant group and so I will help you and you help me. Now, Every other, since since I've been going the last 10 or 15 years, I've been going to those, um, uh, every other pr political candidate that shows up says, oh, no, no, I am one of you. Yeah. I am one of you. I grew up, I came up through this movement. Donald Trump went to Values Voters, and he is the man, his book, Art of the Deal. He's all about the deal. So he went in, and he said, I'm not one of you, but you are a large constituency. You tell me what you want. And make me president and I'll give you what you want. And that is exactly what he's doing. So he's given them a Supreme Court justice so that they can knock down Roe versus Wade and call into question a woman's right to choose. Um, he's given them the vice presidency because Mike Pence came up uh, through the Christian right movement. Uh, he's given them the um, uh, 
chair of the Department of Education. Uh, that's one of their hand-selected uh, uh, people that have come through their movement and, and someone very wealthy and has given back a lot to their movement. Um, his affinity for Israel is is not just, I mean, America has an affinity with Israel. That is absolutely the case. Uh, but the Christian right do in particular. And uh, some would argue, not me, because I don't have enough evidence at this point, uh, that some of his recent moves around Iran and, and making sure Israel feels very comfortable in that area um, reflect some of the agenda um, that the leaders of the Christian right have. So they're very powerful in terms of uh, whoever leads the country. That will concern some people inside America and out. Having spent time with them, having understood them in a way that very few people probably do from outside of their uh, group, uh, do you worry about them, or, or, or is there any are there any crumbs of comfort we can take that actually this, these aren't malign individuals trying to drag a president rightwards? That there are there are positives that we can all take from their relationship with power. Okay, I think the first positive I would say is while their constituency is large within the Republican Party, the elites have only a, sm uh, only a limited amount of power. Okay. They had uh, increasing power with Reagan, a little bit with Bush, but not so much, uh, both, both uh, George W. and George Sr., and then increasing uh, some power with Trump. Um, so they are, they are limited in terms of the elite power. Um, but what the elites do have power over is to get the voters out and get them moving. Now, um, the constituents themselves, I think, are carrying lots of question marks around Trump right now. So despite what their leaders say, I think there's care they're carrying a lot of question marks um, about his morality and that sort of thing. So if there's a positive to hang on to, I think some of them are feeling a bit more ambivalent. And what are their moral issues with <laughs> Trump? Is it... You know, the, the attitude to his marriage, his attitude to women. Where, where's their moral quandary with him? Well, I can... I This is not part of my research because, as I said, I don't talk to the constituents. Um, so I can report only on those that are... Um, uh, that I know very well. And we can talk about who I am in a minute, but uh, <laughs> uh, that I know very well. And, yes, of course, they're, they're worried about his morality. Um, but there's an interesting overlap here. So... Um, Trump is actually, on, in some respects, the manifestation of the American dream. So the American dream is you work hard, you behave yourself, you'll succeed. Mm. And that's the kind of, that, that goes back to the Protestant work ethic and you know, all sorts of things feed into that. So if you work hard and you behave yourself, you'll succeed. So if you're not successful, it's because either you're not working hard or you're not behaving yourself. <laughs> So there you get the, the kind of the definition of, oh, well, they're just white trash or they're lazy. Yeah. Or you get the, oh, well, they're a welfare queen kind of discourse mm. that comes out. So you either work hard, behave yourself, um, uh, and you'll succeed. Now, the problem with that logic is once you succeed, the rest of that stuff doesn't matter. So it, once you have money then it doesn't matter if you're working hard or you're behaving yourself. So in many ways, Trump is actually a success story because he's getting to do what he wants yeah. in all sorts of realms of his life. And there's a kind of, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Fascinating to know where the different pressures come from, particularly on the right. And obviously this is something that you're, you're an expert on. It might sound like a small detail to go back to, but the, the thing about the emails... 25 different groups from a sign-up, you know, you signed up to five or six. Were all of those 25 groups political groups 
Or were some of them commercial and not political at all and they just sold you data to you know, Coca-Cola or McDonald's? Yeah, yeah, no, no. So uh, the, the, res- the, the publications that will come out of it are focusing mainly on those five groups because, like I say, the others kind of come and go. But um, all the others time. were political. Uh, but all of the others were political. All of the others were from the Christian right. Okay. But maybe focused on a particular issue at a particular moment. And some of them were state uh, rather than national. So it wasn't just that I got uh, my email got sold on to national organizations, but on state level kind of organizations, larger states, other New York, California, Florida, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so they're all political. Um, are they trying to sell me something? Well, they're not doing anything different. And on this point, it's really important. They're not doing anything different than those on the left. Yes. Or those in the middle. Every activist group does the same thing in that they want to get your email and then they want to send you out uh, uh, things that either inform you or get you to send them money So and make a donation. You know, So there's a lot of we are only going to save... America, if you send us money, if we if we challenge this bill, and yeah. in order to challenge that bill, then you need to send us money. Now, every single activist group does that, so that's not something unique to the Christian right. Um, there are other things that they try to sell um, around, for example, publications or trips, particularly trips to the Holy Land. So they will use that as a fund, a political fundraising event. It's a. a it raises funds for their organisation, yeah. But you get to go on a trip in return. Yes. It's quite yes. a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mostly, yeah, you know, the emails you get from the Labour Party, for instance, in this yeah. country, just give us five quid. Yeah. It's very rarely, give us five pounds and we'll go to Karl Marx's grave or we'll go to yeah. and one know, of, one of the Hardy's things that, old house. And one of the things that we've seen in the emails is in the last um, five to ten years, certainly the last five years, um, one of the areas that has spiked is on this tourism front. And there is some indication wow. there is some indication that donor money is slipping and that this is them kind of stretching in the market and finding other ways in which they can diversify their income um, is to go into these kind of become sponsoring tra- these Become tools. travel agents. Um, so, and, and all of those, most of those are to the Holy Land. Um, I wonder if we'll so. see that here. I, I, can you imagine a day when the Lib Dems do a kind of special trip to Brussels on the Eurostar to raise money for... <laughs> is that going to be a, an area, do you think, that, that, that British politics will learn from? I'll tell you one thing about watching their political strategy and learning more and more about it from the evidence that's there is, um, uh, A, how their political strategy... Some on the left do it, do similar things... The left doesn't do it anywhere near as well. We're far the, the left, and I, I certainly wouldn't put myself on the left. But in terms of the Christian right, I would put myself more to the left than the Christian right. To the left of it, yeah. um, uh, are far too fragmented and don't speak to one another and um, are too competitive of their, about their own political terrain. Um, uh, but there are Christian right groups that send that that um, just just as there are were with Tony Blair brought. Folks over to act as consultants uh, to the Labour Party. Yep. Uh, similarly, the Christian right sends uh, people here to help and act as consultants for similar groups here in the UK and similar groups across Europe. So who um, would the similar groups here be? UKIP, the Tory party? Um, usually not. Not. I don't have any evidence that says it's UKIP or the Tory party directly. Um, similar groups in terms of uh, their Christian beliefs. Okay. 
so, I mean, the fragmentation of the left is, is, a, is a problem that has blighted it throughout its Indeed. history. Um, and anyone who studied the Chartists or the birth yeah, of the Labour Party yeah. would say... I mean, you only need to look now at uh, any march on any issue... Just a multitude of different flags and banners calling for all sorts of different things rather than a single... Per- Even if you look at the, the anti-Iraq march, mm. there are Palestinian flags and all sorts of things that could just slightly confuse the message. I mean, to be fair to the anti-Iraq march, it was clear what it was about and the media coverage yeah. reflected that clarity. But nevertheless, I was in Paris the other week and there was a protest about something and everyone had exactly the same flag. There was no other... Right. There were no different flags. <laughs> it was an Algerian protest... And there were, it, the clarity of it was really striking. Yeah. And uh, therefore, as an observer of it, it's more powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's fascinating. Why? What is it about the left that makes okay. it more fragmented? I, I, I don't know about the left, but I'll tell you, the, 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 right, the Christian right have a word for it. Um, they call it co-belligerency. Co-belligerency? Co-belligerency. It so doesn't sound very positive. So, so there was this uh, theologian uh, called Francis Schaeffer who came up with this term in the 70s, so just after the Roe versus Wade decision in the US and he said look um, the Catholics and the evangelicals don't or Protestants generally don't work well together they don't work and play well with each other in fact they hate each other um, and he said but on this issue we have to work together so he coined the phrase co- we have to be co-belligerents <laughs> and what's amazing about the Christian right is that these are people that have a huge range of theological differences yeah. and think and if you had a theological discussion amongst them some would say the others are going to hell which is the worst thing that you can say in that group yeah and yet on specific issues they say no 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 we are going to agree on this and on this we are going to work together and in that sense as pat robertson said in the 80s they have a cultural war and they they hone in on those specific issues and that's how they win one little war at a time one little battle at a time obviously a multitude of political strategies that will come out in this book. What are the most effective? Um, one of the most humorous and I think effective, uh, I, I don't know why I think it's humorous, but anyway, so I, I, I am from Texas and um, uh, you have no one has no idea how important the Texas State School Board is. The Texas State School Board um, is the largest... Uh, purchaser of textbooks in uh, in the U.S. Wow! And because of that, they kind of get to define the market. Then, so if a publisher says, "Okay," if they say, "This is the textbook we want," the publisher says, "Okay," and then that's the one that they market to to across the U.S. So, one of the most powerful positions that you can be in, if you're amongst the Christian right, is to be on the Texas State School Board and then define what history is. And define what science is. And so one of the most impressive things that they've done is is all power is in the PTA. You cannot imagine how important politically the PTA is. Go and read Madeleine Albright's book. The PTA is where she started. So they, they began taking over every local PTA, and then they took over the Texas State School Board, and then you get us back to... Uh, you know, evolution being or uh, intelligent design being taught alongside evolution, wow. and you get it back to the history of the United States being told about a kind of great awakening, a kind of white man, uh, about it being a city upon a hill, and My that's God. the history books that are being taught. So, if you can influence that generation, then 
What a powerful political argument. What a powerful political tool, because that's what they've done in the last 25 years is is learn to teach the next generation. I mean, that's a far more profound and concerning strategy than just an email list that oh, gets God, absolutely. passed on. Absolutely. And the, the, the kind of second prong of that where they've been amazing, and um, I had a book about this previously, but is, is uh, in Western Europe and the UK, we had a post-war settlement that kind of said, and I paraphrase all of social policy here, but that kind of said... Okay, uh, the state will have a kind of capitalist welfare state, and the state will, in some sense, kind of try to take care of the, the make sure the citizens fare well. Yeah. And so we have a kind of welfare state, and in America, that got, only got so far. There are some national federal programs that provide, but for the large part of things, are left to individual states. So most welfare happens in in individual states, particularly around childcare or around care for the elderly, yeah? And in those two areas, if you look across the United States, the largest provider for child care, care for the elderly, and in general health care are religious hospitals. And so the religious groups have a huge stake in making sure that the state does not take over welfare. And that in itself gives them a lot of power in your local community. If you are a single mom, um, so so my my family is from near Amarillo, Texas. My mother was in a hospital, went to see her, and was reading the paper, the local paper. And if you're like in May time, so school's about to get out. Now school is out for three months in Texas. And what do you do with your kids? Yeah, exactly. What do you do with your kids? So you open up the newspaper, and there's a, a double page spread of every church in town, of which there are a lot, that runs a vacation Bible school for a week, every church runs one. So if you're really smart and a single mom and you can't do this, or anybody that needs childcare, you can map on almost most of the summer by sending your kid to vacation Bible school at a church. So you drop them off at church, they usually start about nine, they end about three or four, so school hours. So that's the kind of level of welfare. Now, I, that... All of those churches are not a part of the Christian right, and I'm not making that as all one thing in any shape, form, or fashion. But that's the level at which religion provides welfare and has a stake in welfare. Uh, so significant. I mean, it, it would be like the equivalent here of the trade unions providing mm. <laughs> sort of summer school for, yeah. for, for kids. Yeah, yeah. I suppose in terms of extrapolating for the UK... That is very, very different. I mean, you could learn in a small way from that, but you would never get to the stage where churches in this country were able to provide that sort of level, certainly not delivering effectively taxpayers' money for services. Well, by most indicators, religiosity in this country is declining, meaning mm. the people that, that go to church regularly is declining. Uh, there's one exception to that, but the, but the religiosity is declining, and so they they literally wouldn't have the yeah. the constituents to provide that kind of care. And is, is Islam is the is... Uh, oddly enough um, that is that is that is a strong religion in this country, but the one that is growing the most rapidly are independent evangelical churches. Okay, so the sort of Christianity, but in a different form. Um, well, it is it is Christianity, yeah. but it's certainly not the Church of England or Baptist or Methodist in that sense. There are independent churches. I mean, they're they're huge ones in most uh, British cities now. Yeah. 
Um, and they provide, it's interesting, they provide a range of things. So not just your average Sunday service, That's but right. they, they like American churches. You know, American churches have gymnasiums and pools and all sorts of things to keep kids active and, and well, maybe have a school alongside. So many of these churches aspire to that and do a lot of youth programs and that sort of thing. And they provide a really good service to the community. No, I know, I, I know people who go to them in Nottingham, where I'm from, uh, uh, people that I didn't think were that religious have started going to them. So what are they offering? How are they reaching people in a way that the Catholic Church or the Church of England isn't? Is it by offering those other things, or is there something about the services themselves that are more attractive? Um, I don't... I've had... There are some people that I think that go, and again, this isn't based on my research because I don't, uh, but I can tell you about other people's research. There are people that go for the music because yeah. the music is often different. It's not hymns. There's usually a band and um, uh, some more um, uh, exciting music. Yeah, contemporary. Um, uh, contemporary music, yeah, shall we say. <laughs> um, but in, certainly in the States, a lot of the reason they go is based on the way in which you are brought into a community. So you don't just attend church. You are you are then part of a community. Yeah. So if you move in to a new town and whether you're an individual or whether you're a single parent with kids or you're a young couple, how are you going to meet people? Where are you going to meet people? How do you get meet people locally? And so the church, you might meet somebody at work that says, oh, we'll come along and they have fellowship dinners or, oh, we have a baseball team, come and join our softball team. Um, oh, we, we have a gym, come and play basketball here. And that's where that's where uh, they provide that kind of service and that kind of welcoming community. And then the church stuff kind of becomes a little bit later, but then becomes a part of it. Wow. I mean, it's, it, you kind of have to respect the level of dedication to getting people through the door in a way to make it as attractive as possible. This is This is about truth and untruth. This is about heaven and hell. This is very clear, um, you know, dynamic here so you you why if you had the truth why would you not want to share that with people it makes perfect sense oh i understand i understand the desire but given the way that other religious institutions uh try and perhaps fail in other ways you almost have to respect that generation of preachers or call them what you will for for understanding where the public are at yeah, I mean, I think in the states it's it's much more common. It's it's not a shift away from uh, you know even the denominations started out in that kind of uh, getting to know your local community and providing services for your local community. So, but I again, I I have lots of respect for those in a local community providing welfare services that simply don't exist that the state certainly isn't going to provide. Um, so I have a lot of respect for the the work that they do. Um, I get a little bit, my, my uh, research focuses then on the elites because that's what annoys me about the way in which they interpret Christianity mm. and what that community is supposed to be and the us and the other and who is the target and who, do we, who are we supposed to hate. Um, and it's those elites that, that are politically interesting and, uh, and worrisome. Faith. Uh, it's been such a big part of your life. Um, you were a member of a Methodist church. Your father was a preacher. Uh, I mean, is is he still preaching? How long did how long was his career? Uh, he had a very long career. He's no longer with us, but he oh, was no, no. It's fine. He's, he's a Methodist. He was a Methodist preacher uh, for thirty something years, I believe. Um, 
uh, in West Texas in the middle of, well, I w- normally I say the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> it kind of is. And uh, I apologize <laughs> to anybody in West Texas who may listen, but um, we were about 300 miles from a hospital or a, a mall or uh, at least a kind of 100 miles from a decent grocery store. So, yeah, we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Going to the movies was not a, not an option, really. Um, I had a very Huckleberry Finn kind of childhood. Cool. And all of that, including going out fishing in the creek and uh, jumping off the tire into the lake and all of that sort of stuff, but also the racism and the guns and everything else that goes with that. Um, uh, so, yes, my father was a Methodist preacher, but his own personal theology was much more um, John Wesley's socialist, social justice um, theology. So uh, I didn't, you know, have any um, uh, difficulty at home or coming out or anything like that with uh, with him. Well, that's what you you yeah. uh, you sort of uh, uh, hinted at the other thing we were going to introduce is your sexuality is obviously a, uh, a big part of who you are and has informed a, a lot of the work that you've done. I mean, how how would you describe your own sexuality? What is the word you'd use? Okay, I'm a lesbian. I only ask that. How bizarre! Well, the reason I, the reason I ask, and I know it sounds weird, is because there there are a whole. I don't know whether I'm always aware if you're talking to somebody as a white straight man. Yeah, I can watch you dancing through the tulips. Go on. Other issues. Uh, just because there are so many different phrases now for it that I'm not and always entirely sure what is and what isn't politically correct and what isn't isn't polite. So, is queer okay? Is gay okay? There's LGBT. IQ, positive, negative. And I mean this in a genuine sense of being on side of... LGBT's only been around a while, and now it's LGBTIQ, and what other words are will be added and what other words sh- should we use and what, what are the correct labels okay. in 2018? OK, so despite the fact that I laughed at you, the yeah. best thing you can do as a straight white man is ask. Yes. So well done. Thank you. Um, and not assume on any of those fronts... Uh, so let the let whoever it is decide for themselves, and they'll let you know. Yeah. So just ask. Yeah. Just ask. Um, but I mean, but also you... there's a kind of yeah, you can ask if it's appropriate, and in this interview, obviously it is appropriate. Yeah. Asking someone randomly that you meet in the street, or asking someone <laughs> no, no, at work, no, crikey, yeah. you know, uh, they're, they're asking someone at work just because you're curious is probably not appropriate. No, so, I wouldn't do that. Uh, so in this interview, yeah, just ask, but uh, but otherwise. Um, wait until they decide to tell you. Because in your, in your book, Below the Belt, which is uh, available uh, online and covers all sorts of things, your own, I mean, it's autobiographical as well as it's political and about religion, your own personal development, including experiences with boys. I mean, a lot of the things, the excerpts I've read of it and the, the reviews of it, I mean, it's, it's, it's very open and honest, isn't it, about hmm. personal experiences. I mean, do you feel as... Um, as an academic, that, that other academics perhaps wouldn't be as honest as you've been about your life? Right. So, um, Below the Belt is a particular kind of book, and I would not, uh, and many others have not described it as an academic book in that sense. So, um, I left the farm and I uh, got a, a fellowship, to, a scholarship to come over here for a year in 1989 and got stuck, and here I am. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> I traveled not only in terms of distance, but in terms of uh, academic distance, in terms of class, um, and in terms of experiences from my family, who were very, very poor, and I was the first one to go to university. So 
Below the belt was my attempt to explain to them the different theories and the different approaches to politics that I had learned, but in a language that they would understand. I also had read far too much Bill Bryson at that point. <laughs> um, uh, so I drove across the South. I had particular interviews uh, ready and set up in advance. Uh, but I literally took about, well, I went on two trips, but driving across the South and stopping and talking to people um, uh, in cafes and at baseball games and all sorts about a range of topics of gender and sexuality and religion and class and all sorts of things. And so it's not objective academic research. There was no survey done. It is a, it is a fun book about that is political and that is a storytelling book, but it was written for my mom, so she would understand. She left school at 14, and she needed to understand what it was that I was doing. So that's the language in which it's written in. Um, it's not uh, the kind of study that I'm doing now and that sort of thing. Uh, and how did your mum react? Um, do you know, she really liked it. Oh, good. Yeah, no, she really liked it. Um, my dad was a little bit disappointed, but it wasn't from the stories that were that are told in there. He was more disappointed because he had um if i'd if I'd given him my PhD, which was a separate thing, if I'd given him my PhD or if I handed him an academic piece, then he could see, oh yes, my daughter's a doctor, she gets this, she's a professor and and everybody in the you know entire West Texas area knew that I was a professor. Um, but it was so that was his kind of model of what it meant to be an academic so it, to read this it kind of was a mess with his head a little bit and how did he how did he express that was did he tell you this directly um yeah yeah i mean we talked we just simply it was a, you know it was not a huge discussion but it was just a, a quick chat about you know he i was writing about the politics of the american south and so i think he expected a you know a history of the governors or the state <laughs> legislators or that yeah. sort of thing and that wasn't what it is so and how does your politics differ from his? Oh, good question. Um, if you define politics as your everyday life and how you engage with others, um, probably not that much. Um, if you define politics as um, a healthy cynicism... Um, I'm probably more cynical than he was, despite the fact that he lived through um, some very difficult times in the uh, post-war years in America. Um, so yeah, yeah, he was he was full of hope. But you know, what would you expect out of a preacher? That's well, exactly indeed. what it should be. Uh, I mean, how much effect does it have on you being being the the daughter of a preacher? Because preachers in in that part, of, in any part of the world, have a level of status. They're they're known locally. They're celebrities in in one regard. They're also highly influential. People confide in them. Uh, they they have an almost political status, almost beyond politics in terms of how much they're trusted by the community. Did that have any effect? Do you think on your attitude towards authority or towards even faith itself? Um. Two things kind of come to mind. One is, uh, well, no, three. One is being a preacher's daughter in West Texas in towns of 396 people is very, 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 very different than being a Church of England minister's child in the very middle class way in which that it means in the UK. Yeah. Okay. So let's not confuse the two on class grounds at all. Okay. So my father worked three jobs alongside being a pastor. 
Um, and then he would have to drive the 300 miles to the hospital to visit a, a, a parishioner who was ill. So um, a very different in terms of class. Um, uh, in terms of being a, being a public figure, um, yes, in the town of 396, if the preacher's daughter gets caught with a beer, everybody in town knows before I've reached the bottom of the can. <laughs> so, yeah, that, there was a, a note about uh, public image there and uh, keeping the the living room clean because the little old ladies from the church would come around and inspect whether or not the preacher's house was clean and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's, there's a note about public life. Um, but being a part of the church taught me a lot about politics. Mm. It taught me a lot about the intersection between politics and religion. And those are different things for me than faith. So the intersection of an institutional religion and politics that happens either internally in that institution, like it does any other institution, and the way in which the institution of religion has an influence over politics. And that could be the larger Baptist church in town uh, campaigning for the mayor of a town of 396 had just as much power as the Christian right. So growing up, watching those power, political, religious dynamics happen certainly feed my research now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In terms of, um, I mean, I sort of hinted at it uh, about uh, about the fact that it's maybe not the sort of book that other academics would write, and I mean that in a positive way. In an interview with the Times Higher Education, um, there's a line which says, uh, writing a book in this style is not the most obvious way to build an academic career, and Wilson suspects it may not have done her any favours. But do you think that in any regard that there has been a reaction from the academic community? I wouldn't go so far as to say many people in the academic community read it, so <laughs> I can't uh, can't speak for everyone in the academic community. What I will say is uh, currently in our world of the REF and yeah. the research exercise framework, which makes uh, uh, sets targets for academics to be doing research, and those targets are fine and good, and I understand every job has to have a target and I, and, and goals, and that's fine. But in that kind of atmosphere... What has happened is about what counts as research and what doesn't count as research has become much more clear, shall we say. So what counts uh, in, in some institutions as research are only those things that are quantified, uh, quant- uh, quantitative methodology, only things that are STEM-related subjects, um, only things that are electoral politics and can give you numbers, um, and not the marginalized subjects or not those subjects that take a more participant observation or empirical approach to methodology. So in that kind of atmosphere where there's that kind of split over quantitative research versus empirical research, this particular book, which was not meant to be an academic book, um, certainly wasn't welcome uh, as an academic book, and it wasn't. So that's, that's fine. 
but going then to your head of department and saying, yes, I've produced the book, they went, uh, not so much. <laughs> so snobbery, really? Um, it's, uh, you know, it's about what gets defined as good research. And, yeah. you know, that book is, you know, it is a, a Bryson-esque uh, travel through the American South by a preacher's kid who is a working-class lesbian as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a thing. It's, well, it's a particular I mean, thing. That would appeal to people far more as a, as a, as a pitch for a book to read. No, no, than... the upcoming book will appeal. Oh, of course. Sorry, that, just to be really will... clear. Absolutely, the upcoming <laughs> book, even more so, had you uh, allowed me to finish. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we talk about the reaction of the academic community. Uh, the, the, the piece and interview that you gave that I read, um, when you'd, you'd started to work on gay issues uh, and you put someone down as a reference for a job and they get in touch with you and say, when University X calls me for a reference for you, I can't say you're a political theorist, you're just a queer. Hmm. Now, just to clarify, is that person... What does that person mean by that? Are they telling you to broaden your CV or are they themselves being prejudiced? In that particular instance, that person was being prejudiced. Um, uh, we are talking 20 years ago. Um, Not that long ago, <clears throat> 1998. OK, maybe a few more years than that. <laughs> <clears throat> Unkind is a word I would describe you. Um, uh, yes, so uh, back in the day, back in the day, Sonny... <laughs> yeah. There was a thing called homophobia. Yeah, well, it still uh, exists now. Uh, exactly. So um, uh, it was much more overt then and a kind of, yeah, you're doing that that kind of research. I don't want to be associated with it. Um, if you're doing that kind of research, it must not be political theory, despite the fact that I was, you know, getting into the minutiae of John Rawls, who is the stalwart of political theory. You know, despite all of that, you know, it was something that m many academics didn't want to be um, associated with. And the, the discipline itself has changed significantly over time um, and is much more welcoming to a broader range of uh, perspectives and therefore a broader range of research as well. In terms of uh, gay politics and, and uh, gay issues and British or American, in my lifetime, you know, it was it, the, the big hot button debates were Section 28. Uh, to some extent, still gay adoption, uh, gay marriage, are those things still the the big battles, or are there what what are the new, do you think, sort of fence posts that we'll see in the next ten or fifteen years? I are realise that's a very big question. Well, indeed, let me just predict into the future about all of the Western world. Um, uh, <laughs> if you're talking about Britain, yeah, um, uh, you know, one of the the best uh, marches I went on, and I, I don't. I rarely go on marches, but uh, but uh, I did a few years ago, and uh, someone was was complaining and saying, "Oh, but it was much more fun when Maggie was in charge because the marches would be a bit more lively." And so everybody started then shouting, "Maggie, Maggie, Maggie, out, out, out!" <laughs> even though I think it was the Blair years. So, um, uh, so Section Twenty Eight and those kinds of things certainly got the LGBT community um, uh, politically active and engaged. Um, what happens, what research tells us what happens uh, in Western countries where policy, there have been policy wins and maybe some would say policy progress, um, is that the, the activist community becomes a little less active okay. and uh, kind of gets on back on with their life. And so it's only when something comes on the political agenda that challenges that, that says, oh, hang on a minute, actually, we don't want. X, whatever that is, that then the activist community says, hang on a minute, we thought we won that war and we'll come yeah. back to it. Now, 
if you want me to predict into the future, um, uh, for those countries where there have been some sort of policy progress, and they are, they are limited, let's yeah. be honest, in, term, in a global sense, but in those countries in the West uh, where there have been some policy progresses, I would say the, one of the key issues that's going to come up uh, in the future is how do we take care of uh, LGBT uh, elderly? So are our care homes ready for thinking about uh, LG, the, the sexuality of and the family connections beyond what they currently do? And so um, we have a number of people that came out in the 60s and 70s that are reaching that age where they will be looking for a residential home of some sort. And um, there's not a lot of residential homes out there that are, that are trained to think about larger kinds of other kinds of families. So uh. the evidence at the moment, there is a, a few, are a few studies out. Uh, uh, Brian Heafy and, and some folks uh, in Manchester have done uh, studies that show uh, elderly gay men that, ha- that have to go into a home end up having to hide all of their pictures and go back into the closet. Uh. Um, and you, you end up very isolated because you don't have what uh, fits into the norm of a family. So a, a, a heterosexual spouse and children. So they end up going back into the closet so that they then don't, uh, at, a, at a moment where they're the most vulnerable, experience um, homophobia and uh, perhaps abuse based on that. So we have a lot of work in this country and in other Western countries to think about how we take care of the LGBT elderly um, over the next 10 or 15 wow. years. Wow. Yeah. That's just something that so many people won't even be thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. And in other countries... You know, God knows the battle isn't won, and course, and yeah. I think of America as well. You know, uh, what uh, my book about uh, there's a, another book called uh, Why um, uh, Why Europe is les- uh, LGBT friendly and Why America or lesbian and gay friendly and Why America never will be, and in in that book I talk about uh, the, the the few policy things that have changed in America are on a state basis, and so there are a number of states in America where the hostility is still there. Mm. Um, you know, America hasn't gotten over the Civil War, so it's certainly not going to be getting over um, the level of hatred that some people have for the gay and lesbian community. I never will be is such a depressing conclusion to reach, isn't it? Yeah, and yet, there you go. <laughs> uh, in terms of... You mentioned people coming out. I mean, it, it, one thing that really frustrates me, uh, uh, almost by proxy, is I never had to come out and tell my mum hmm. what my sexuality was. It's not an experience I'd ever want anyone else to have to go through. I mean, talking to your parents about sex in any regard is, you know, the word. I mean, even when it's animals on Ambra, you know, that's famously <laughs> awful to watch with any sort of relative or anyone you care about, let alone having to announce to your family or to your friends. It's a pressure that obviously specifically affects non heterosexual people. I mean, in terms of your experience of it, you know, how, how long do you build up to that? What's the anxiety like? Um, well, every person has their own unique kind of experience with that, yeah. and unfortunately, there are still those that um, uh, teenagers who struggle with that and end up committing suicide yes. because because it is still a very, very, very difficult thing to do in this country, where you would think all of the policies are there and the religiosity isn't, and certainly the hatred from religiosity is not as yeah. strong. Um, so. Uh, while things do get better, that doesn't mean for everybody right now everything is fine. Um, uh, my own 
my own personal story was not that, you know, that uh, uh, difficult. You know, I came out to my parents and they had kind of figured it out by then. And yeah. I was freaked out that my mother knew the word <laughs> homosexual or bisexual or whatever, because that was, you know, again, I, I often I used to teach this course on uh, social problems in uh, Manchester years ago. And one of the things I would talk about is how do we as a society talk about sex? Yeah. And when you get first years to kind of then say, okay, well, let's talk about uh, how sex is regulated uh, for ev- your average person. Okay. Okay, so they can kind of get, okay, you have to be 16 and you're supposed to be consensual. Sex. They get yeah. all of that. But then when you start thinking about grandma having sex in the care home, they get, oh, my God, I don't want to talk about grandma having sex. You know, <laughs> oh, my God, grandma can't hold hands with some guy that she just met down the corridor yeah. because there's regulations against that. So they get really freaked out about it. Yeah, so we do have as a society a, well, a worry is, about talking about sex okay, and how so, do we do that. Well, this and, is because there'll be people listening to this wherever they listen all over the world. Uh, we'll find this difficult. So let's just go through some of the things you would then talk about. So what are the interesting things to explore? So grandma having sex is is another thing. What other things would you put to them? Okay, so on a more serious note, uh, the fact that we as a society, especially, um, especially for teenagers and where there is a little bit of religious influence, we think of sex as something that should just happen in one particular way and in one particular with one particular kind of group and otherwise we don't want to talk about sex and so it can only happen there and if it happens outside that particular thing that heterosexual marriage it's somehow dirty okay and so by making sex other other kinds of sex other than the heterosexual f- uh, family structure dirty yeah. then people don't talk about it and if you don't talk about it then you don't give a voice to those kids who have been abused. So you don't give them a language where they can say, oh, if that's what happened to me. So by keeping silent about sex, um, we then don't talk about it. We, we then set, send a signal to someone who may be abused that I don't want to talk about it. Now, I'm not a, I am not an advocate of we need to talk about every kind of sex to every kind of child under any kind of age and under any kind of circumstances. I am not. I have two kids of my own. I don't want to talk about sex with them. No parent does. No. I get that. But, you know, this kind of, in some sense, it mirrors the, what's happening in the, in the public square in terms of politics. We need to talk. You know, that's the only thing that's going to get us over the polarization that happens politically. But we have to give things a language and we have to be able to talk a little bit and not be scared as parents when your kid says, oh, I've heard this word or what does this mean? Or they use a phrase. Yeah. And to not go, oh, my God, I don't want to speak about that, and I'll never talk about it. don't ever speak. You know, we have to kind of go, okay, right, so what is it that you need to know about that, and what do you not understand, and 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 give an, an age-appropriate answer yeah. to that and something that they can handle. And I, and nine times out of ten, when you start trying to give them an answer, at, at certainly a teenager, they will then leave because uh, they <laughs> then get embarrassed yeah. about that. Um, but... We need to do more of that. You know, we talk, I've been talking about kind of Trump and how polarized America is at the moment. And it is that political conversation that we need to have. One of the things that we've learned from coming out is that the more people that come out, the less in, in America, the polls show us that if you know somebody who is out, the less likely you are to vote for policies that penalize people for mm. being gay. So coming out 
is is an incredibly political act because it affects not just you and your life, but those that know you at work or in the family or whatever are much less likely then to say, oh, no, I don't know any of those people. And those people are only the weird people from New York that end up on telly and pride. And I don't, you know, I don't like those people. But when it's, oh, that's our Ange, wait a minute, then it makes them stop at the ballot and and have a little rethink about how they're going to vote. And if we're not having that conversation, then we're in a big trouble in in our public square, not just about coming out, but about Brexit, you know, how many people suddenly now talk about how they voted about Brexit yeah, yeah. as a kind of con- a, a, a kind of communal confessional <laughs> and then go, oh, right. And then that opens up the conversation. Yeah. Whereas p- during the campaign, it was so polarized that people weren't having those conversations. I mean, it's, it's one thing to kind of to know these things and to, to accept them. It's quite another to have a career talking about gay issues, about effectively sexual politics, because every... Every year, you're going to have a fresh batch of people that you're going to have to go through this, you know, all again with. And it's not like you're just teaching history; you're teaching things that people might struggle with. They might struggle with their own feelings about. Yeah, I currently um, teach. I don't teach that at the moment. I, in the past, I've taught uh, uh, feminist theory and gender yeah. theory and those sorts of, of courses. At the moment, I'm teaching American politics. And of course, uh, on the politics of hate, where we look at things like political strategy and that yeah. sort of thing. Um, uh, but when one is teaching gen- gender theory, broadly speaking, or even when one is teaching American politics, and we're talking about why Trump and um, uh, why America has particular kinds of foreign policies, mm-hmm. and why Trump got elected, and that you can't not talk about gender and the notions of masculinity that are inbuilt yeah. in the American culture, where, where it's from the cowboy, where I grew up, and why why Sarah Palin is fits perfectly into that, despite the fact that she's a woman, because she's a grizzly mama. So there's a whole Western kind of roots there that you need to get to, to uh, gender roots that you need to get to in order to explain some of those concepts. In terms of Hillary Clinton, then, because obviously we know she lost... We also know she got three million more votes. Where does she fit into that? Did she challenge that at all, or did she assimilate? Did she challenge what? Well, that kind of that, that masculine paradigm almost of American politics that to succeed you have to sort of become a man in a, in a you know or have masculine outwardly masculine political traits. Um, I think any certainly up until recently, most women in politics um, were if they had an opinion or were assertive, not aggressive, or were rational, or spoke out about their beliefs and their ideology, someone would turn around and say, oh, well, they're just acting like a man. Because that's the way in which masculinity was seen as, oh, they're they're the rational ones, and it's femininity, and they're the ones that bake cookies. And so anytime you did something other than how femininity was defined, therefore you were being masculine, as if there were only two choices there. Yeah. So um, I certainly didn't see Hillary Clinton as being masculine, um, nor do I see Angela Merkel as being masculine, or, um, or even Sarah Palin, who also wore pantsuits, as being masculine. Um, I see them all three 
in very different ways, being strong women that come out of a particular kind of history there. Um, so I don't think they're taking on masculine traits. You know, that was said about Maggie, that Mag- Margaret Thatcher, that she was taking on, that she was just being a man. But actually, she was being an assertive woman and her definition of what that meant. But, yeah. But in terms of Sarah Palin, you know, you used the phrase sort of grizzly mama about Sarah Palin. In terms of her appeal, then, are you saying that she deliberately appealed to a particular type of politics that's that's informed by gender? Well, when John McCain was running, uh, John McCain was not um, uh, did not come up through the Christian right movement in the Republican Party. And if you are going to be a successful candidate, a Republican candidate, you need to uh, send a signal to the Christian right that you will hear them. Mm-hmm. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to pick a vice presidential candidate um, that did come up through that through that movement. Trump did that, and uh, uh, John McCain did that. Um, Sarah Palin very much came up uh, through that movement, but there is, um, it's it's a little bit, <laughs> maybe maybe it doesn't translate well for a British audience, but you need to go back and think about um, Western pioneers that went across America, and it was not certainly gender was there, and that there were there were maybe men jobs and women jobs. But when it came down to it, those couples that were going across West Texas at the time uh, worked. Both of them recognized that each one worked just as hard as the other. Uh, those cowboys and cowgirls, those farmers, they they relied on each other, and so there is a respect there. I'm not saying it's it's some sort of feminist utopia. Let's just be clear, but there is a respect there amongst those couples for how hard each other works, and there is respect there where the woman is just as likely to shoot the rattlesnake that you step out onto. Um, as the man is likely to shoot the rattlesnake. So there's a number of, so in that kind of tradition, there's a number of political uh, women, sorry, women that have come up through politics um, that that borrow and build on that tradition. Sarah Palin uh, was one of those. Ann Richards was a governor of Texas and uh, an amazing strong woman, and she could outshoot anybody. Um, and she, that was part of who she was. So it's okay, and that's not them being masculine, it's them using a particular kind of understanding of what it means to be a strong woman. In terms of Hillary, then, in terms of her, her losing to Trump and the manner in which she was treated and the, the language that was used against her and uh, the differences in, in, in gender voting patterns, was that a sexist election? Um, certainly the campaign was sexist. Uh, the rhetoric around uh, uh Hillary was sexist, but it has been for years. Mm-hmm. The Christian right and the Republican Party have been building and planning for Hillary to have run for years and years and years. The Citizens United case that allows for campaign unlimited, untraceable funds into the American political system was that Citizens United case was about a movie made about Hillary Clinton by the Christian right. Yeah. Um, so they have been planning, you know, uh, she was involved with the, she was one of the attorneys uh, involved in the Nixon case. So there's a long history there um, with Hillary Clinton. So was that particular campaign sexist? Well, yes, but they have been building up to that and they had their reasons for playing it in that way. Um, uh, did that mean that Hillary, that, that Hillary Clinton had parameters that she chose to work within and to not challenge yes and 
you know, looking back, maybe she should have turned on the debating stage and challenged him for the way in which he was standing behind her. But I venture to guess on an American audience that would have played against her. In terms of people voting against her, do you think Trump was able to mobilise effectively sexist? Do you think do you think men voting in America would have been more likely to vote for her on the identical platform if she was a, a man? Well, um, so here's one of the, those embarrassing moments where an where academic makes a prediction. Um, I was being interviewed before the election and I said, you know, oh, you know, yeah, it'll be fine. She'll she'll win. Um, I know. I know. I know. I've learned my lesson. Uh, But then I remembered about six months previous to that, I was interviewed by the same folks. And I actually said, never underestimate how much the American people hate Hillary Clinton, Mm. because every single Every single event that I have attended, every single email, every single, you know, they all are very clear about how they stand toward Hillary Clinton. So the level of hatred is quite deep, not just on the elites of the Christian right, but deep in the constituency in the Republican Party and deep in the constituency in the Democratic Party. So I did exactly what I told myself not to do, which was underestimate that that hatred. Um yeah, sorry, tell me what so your that, question was well, again. And actually, the, the, it's led us in a different direction because one thing I've never been able to fathom... I understand why politicians are unpopular in general. I understand why some politicians are less popular than others. I always felt she was hugely unfairly treated. And actually, the hatred was disproportionate to any sort of criticism she could have uh, fairly expected. I think the demonisation of Hillary Clinton was one of the most bizarre phenomenons I've, I've witnessed in, in Western politics, that she seems to strike me as a, a, an eminently reasonable, sensible, clearly intelligent, decent... I mean, one of the most overqualified candidates for, for the office in my life. OK, if I was being facetious at this point, I'd yeah. say to you, yeah, your surprise could only be the surprise of a white man. Yeah. So the level of misogyny that Hillary Clinton under, uh, went through every day... Yeah reflects the kind of society that we live in. And I'm not saying that every woman experiences that, but every woman experiences at some point. They don't experience it to that extent or every day, but every woman has that kind of, oh, look at what she's wearing. Oh, look at what Mm. she says. Oh, what's she done with her hair? Oh, why can't she bake cookies? Oh, she's talking. Would she just shut up? (laughs) Oh, my God, she knows too many details. Could she just shut up now? So we all kind of face that yeah. uh, in one way or another regardless of what your political party is so um yes it seemed out of proportion with hillary clinton but um it's not that out of proportion it does reflect to some extent how society is already and then you take on the fact that yes she is an outspoken woman yes she has been in power in dc for a very long time mm. and there is a deep sentiment of anti-federalism in America they absolutely hate many people absolutely hate anything that comes out of Washington DC now i know there is a north south divide in this country but there are not people in manchester that i know of that would absolutely hate every single thing that came out of the, in anything inside the m25 yeah so this level of anti-federalism looks at Hillary Clinton and says, yeah, well, she's a Washington insider. We're, we don't like them. Her husband's already had a go. So, yeah. So it was, it was intense for her. Um, but it, and, and it was blown out of proportion, yeah. certainly compared to her credentials for the job. Um, 
but it's not a surprise to any woman on the planet. No, not a surprise, but nevertheless, uh, it was disproportionate to to her to her personality and to her to her CV. You know, to her as a politician. But people uh, don't vote. People no, don't look at CVs not, when they're no. voting. They no. think, "Oh, do I like that person? Do I not like that person?" And who's telling me to like them or not like yeah. them? I, I mean, do you think you'll ever see a female president of the United States? Ooh, I'm not predicting the future on this one. Um, do you know, if Britain's anything to go by, if it's possible for there to be an American president, it would it would come from the Republican Party and not the Democrat Party. That's right. So, um, so there's the closest I'm going to get to a prediction on that front. Uh, okay. I mean, in terms of individuals, because people are already talking, you know, who should be the Democrats' candidate for the next one? And okay, I accept you said it's arguably more likely that it'll be a, a Republican, perhaps Sarah Palin. No, Sarah's, Sarah, Sarah's had her 15 moments. <laughs> um, uh, she might not think so. Well, yeah. Um, but the Republican Party, I think, probably does. <laughs> um, I have absolutely no idea who will become the Democratic candidate for the 2000, no, the 2020, do it, do the numbers for me, 2020 election. Yes, 2016 was when you got that. So the 2020 election, I have no idea who will be the Democratic candidate. However, um, assuming he's not impeached, I am fairly certain who will be the Republican candidate. Yeah. Um, it, I, so, um, yeah, so I think the Democrats will choose based on that and they'll take the temperature of the nation when they make that choice. Well, there we go. we have two questions immediately arise from that. Do you think he'll be impeached? <laughs> um, so, uh, um, a little over a year ago, I broke my, I fell down the stairs and uh, carrying laundry, not anything exciting, and broke my ankle. Oh God! And I ended up, I was fine, but I ended up in bed uh, with my ankle up on a pillow for a very long time, sound asleep one day, and the phone rang, and it was uh, James Comey. Uh, <laughs> oddly enough. <laughs> It was Hillary saying, what should I do? <laughs> um, uh, and uh, sometimes, occasionally, once in a while, the BBC will ring and say, uh, would you like to come and be interviewed? And what happens is a researcher rings and says, blah, 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 and would you like to talk about this? And I go, okay, blah, blah, blah. And they say, okay, we'll call you back and get you on in the morning. And By which time you then have space to think of what you want to say that's yeah. vaguely rational. I wake up from a deep sleep with the phone going, answer the phone, Hi, this is so and so from da da da. I want to talk to you about Trump. Uh, he had just just it was around the inauguration. Just uh, what do you think? You know, what's his presidency going to be like? Blah blah. I said, ah, oh, he'll be lucky to last eighteen months. <laughs> and I say, look, in eighteen months' time, the half the Congress is going to have to be reelected. Uh, the House of Representatives is going to have to be reelected. And uh, if in eighteen months' time he's an albatross around their neck, then he's going to. Uh, they're going to get rid of him or or distance themselves from him in order for their hides so they continue to win and and they'll be fine. Next day, headlines: Academic predicts Trump not to last eighteen <laughs> months. Not in one newspaper, but around the world. Brilliant! <laughs> That's great. And I was like, oh my god! So then, in about two weeks later, some another academic who happens to predict most elections in America came out and said the same thing. So, until this program, I have kept completely silent, because thinking that either, if if he doesn't get impeached, no one will remember I said that, <laughs> and if he does get impeached, then I'm on to a winner there. Yeah. Um, I personally uh, think it's, it, I don't know, uh, it 
it may be that uh, the investigation is over and finds something and something happens over the summer that may lead to some interesting American politics. Um, Impeachment, I think, well, it will be put off until after the November elections and there's a very different looking Congress. Um, But you know what? This is the Trump presidency, so all bets are off. It certainly does feel like there's an inevitability about where this is all heading, but then, Hmm. like you say, you know, we're in the hands not necessarily of uh, people acting in the public good. If 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 he doesn't get impeached and he stands again, does he win again? Damn good case, yeah. Possibly, possibly it depends on who the who the Democrats run. And the you know, I used to think that the only way in which the Democrats have a chance um, is when things get very, 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 very bad, and finally the Democrats organize themselves to have a strategy and actually pull it off. Yeah. But the Democrats are incredibly good at shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, so, that's a global problem. So it's possible for them to lose it. Whether or not he'll win it, I don't know, but it's certainly possible for them to lose it. I can't believe that's the note we're going to end on, that we are cursed with the Trump presidency until 2024. Well, anything's possible at this point. But Professor Wilson, Ange... Angela, thank you so much for coming in. <laughs> that has flown much. by and we've overrun. So I'm Cheers, sorry for keeping you, you longer than we agreed, but uh, there are so many more things we could have talked about, so I hope we can get you back at some point in the future. Lovely, thank you very much. Well, there you go. That was Professor Angela Wilson, Ange, uh, from the University of Manchester. There's so many things. I mean, more... Th- I mean, I suppose that happens with every guest, but there are so many things where I think, well, I'm going to ask you about that, and then they make another point. I think, right, okay, I'm going to have to about that, ask you about that now. There's so many things that, that came out of points she made that I didn't get to talk further about, so hopefully uh, we'll get uh, Anne John again in the future. Her new book sounds brilliant, so we'll, we'll, uh, when that's out, we shall, um, we shall post a link, because we're on Instagram now. So you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. You can also follow the show on Instagram. Daisy has set up the Instagram account. What's it called, Daisy? Party Political Podcast. Party Political Podcast. Hang on, Political Party Podcast. Otherwise, we're we're plugging someone else's podcast. Political Party Podcast. And do they have to put the at in as well? Okay. so on Instagram, we are Political Party Podcast. Almost sure. That's what the Instagram is. So follow us on Instagram. Share us on there with your mates. I don't, do people post photos? Do we just post photos? How does it work? I sound so old. Oh, my word. As always, you can email the show as well, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. We get so many emails, I can't read them all out, but I've picked a few in. Got one here from Jason Smith about slippers. He says, Matt, I'm outraged. I've worn slippers for 10 years. I'm only 50. Had a home cardigan since I was 20. A home cardigan? This is the same one, only wear at home. Now my husband does the regular maintenance required after numerous attempts to bin it. Anyway, missed what the rest of the podcast was about. A home cardigan, so you only wear it at home. I, you know, I had a really comfy cardigan once. I don't know what happened to it. Blue one with press studs. God, I loved it. And I would only wear that at home. So I'm, I'm on side with you, Jason. He said, I missed what the rest of the podcast was about, <laughs> but normally very good. Heidi Allen was excellent. Owen Smith, too. I only, start, I only found out about it after uh, watching Unspun. So I've not listened to old ones. Now, podcast addict. Uh, I haven't got the homework in time. Love the new format of live and not live. Thank you very much, Jason. He said, is there any prospect of videoing some, becoming a YouTuber? I assume that, that gets far too complicated, but like to see the rosé being drunk. 
Would we film on Daisy or is that silly? Daisy, saying we could do is scrunching her face up. Take that as a no for now, Jason. On Facebook, I have a profile, use an old Hotmail address, never befriend anyone or access by phone, but then can follow groups and lurk to read the awful stuff. So there you go, that was coming out of our conversation with Arnand Menon last week. He says, see you, Jason, uh, love you. <laughs> Cheers, Jason, thank you very much. Callum Davies says, Matt, I've been a big fan of yours for ages since discovering you doing the commentary with John Richardson on his Nidiot DVD. Callum, that was my finest work. Uh, he listens to the podcast, watches Unspun religiously as well. Cheers, mate. If there's one thing I'd really like to see or hear on your podcast, especially now that there's more opportunity thanks to your weekly edition, is a bit more focus on regional politicians. This is a great idea. It was great to hear you chat with Professor Roger Scully recently, and it made me think, not only would I love to hear from Wales politicians, but so would all your other listeners. It would be a great opportunity for you to educate the masses on devolution. I'm not sure how much I would educate them, Callum, but my guest certainly would. Uh, he says, I know one guest I'd love to hear from is the Welsh Conservative leader, Andrew R.T. Davies. He's the guy who said, let's make breakfast, I mean Brexit, a success. <laughs> he seems to be someone with a big personality and would have great insights. You might even want to chat with Carwin Jones now that he's announced his intention to resign as First Minister. Both of those guests, Callum, would be superb. And it's a great idea to do regional politicians. Um, and so that is something I will definitely look at. John Reynolds... Says Matt, until recently, I've been listening to the podcast on my second job cleaning at a school. After working a full day, the podcast kept me interested during a job that was rather boring, so thank you. I've since quit the second job and just listened in my flat in Aylesbury. Brilliant. Oh, Aylesbury. What a lovely part of the world, John Reynolds. Connor says, firstly, I love the podcast. I'm 19. Connor, you're probably one of our youngest listeners. I'll tell you what, let's try and find the youngest and the oldest listener. Is that weird? If, well, just get in touch, let us know how old you are. Oh, I don't know, I think that sounds creepy in some weird way. If you think you, well, if you know you're younger than 19, I mean, just get, everyone's free to get in touch. It doesn't matter how old you are, scrap that. I think that's a weird feature, the oldest and the youngest. I think, you know what it is? In Tim Vine's Edinburgh show, he did this brilliant thing where he found the oldest person in the room and then we all sang a song to them. To Viney, if you're listening. Uh, I will not be emulating that on this podcast. Anyway, back to Connor Wallace. He says, I love the podcast. I'm 19 and have listened since I first got interested in politics during the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. So that'd be four years ago. So he was listening at 15. Good on you, mate. He says, you're a fantastic interviewer. Oh, thank you, Connor. And I hope you still have the aim to interview every single member of the house. Yes, I do. He says, I'd also like to lodge a request for you to try and get Pretty Patel on the show. Oh, she'd be brilliant. The eight hours spent tracking her flight from Nairobi to London last year was the best day of my life, says Connor. My two nerdy interests of politics and aviation were finally combined. I'd love to hear Pretty's take on that journey. It was incredibly exciting. It was probably more enjoyable for her because she'd have got, like, at-seat service, watched a couple of films. It'd also be cool to hear the likes uh, from some TV political correspondents. Well, watch this space, Connor, that's all I'll say. Uh, he says, like I say, I love the show. I listen while studying at St Andrews. Wow, you're at a very good university. Good on you, mate. And when I'm walking to classes or travelling back home to Murray. Thank you for all the episodes. Love and hugs, Connor Wallace. Thank you very much, Connor. And the final one is from Victoria Brownlee from West Sussex. She says, as a long-standing listener to your podcast, she listens standing up, I thought I'd grasp the new opportunity to get in touch. As a political assistant myself, currently on maternity leave, your show provides a welcome break to nursery rhymes while also helping me to keep up with the political goings-on for when 
when I return to the rat race. Brilliant! So thanks in advance for giving me some worthy political discussion when I do go back to work, leaving the rest of my brain available for feeding routines, sleep patterns, mother's guilt and all the other joys of parenting. All the best and keep up the good work. Well, Victoria, I'm not a mother or indeed a father, uh, but feeding routines and sleep patterns, just for my own, for myself, are a big part of my life. So I kind of feel like I'm like a parent already. Um, Daisy Knight, who produces the show, who has two boys, uh, staring at me in total disbelief, as parents often do when non-parents pontificate on um, parenting matters. But uh, thank you very much for all your emails. Keep them coming in, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. If you look in the notes, by the way, way, this isn't just available on iTunes, it's available on SoundCloud. Um... Because sometimes people will tweet and say, why isn't it on SoundCloud? It is. So, um, although if you're listening to this, then you already know where it's available. But in terms of telling your mates, which I know you're all doing, and I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Uh, so we're available there. In the notes, on on the in the blurb, we always put how you can follow the guest and links to any of their publications that are available. So do always look at those. Um, and it just allows you to do a bit of extra research in the areas that we've discovered, should you wish. Uh, but I shall be back next week. Thank you very much for downloading. Please share it, subscribe it, do leave a review. I'm, I'm going to ask every week, so you might as well just do it. Oh, hang on, then there's no incentive to shut me up. Just do it anyway, it's a nice thing to do, isn't it? Uh, see you next week. This episode of The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.